0: and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is, this is the word of the Lord. All right, so we're currently in the series where we're going through our visions and val- our vision and values as a church. And our vision, as you heard just a few moments ago, help religious and your religious people to become gospel people. Our values as a church, we've articulated three core values of who we are, and that is sound doctrine, which we went over last week in a sermon. This week we're covering multi-ethnicity, and then next week we'll be going to look at gospel culture and what those things mean for us as a church and how they shape everything that we do and everything that we try to do. We emphasize these three different values as a church. I've lived in Boston for over a dozen years now. This is my home, my, my wife and I. We, we own a house, well, a portion of one, and we, are, we have no plans on leaving. Our kids are growing up here. They were born in Cambridge, and uh, they're, they're growing up here. This is home for all of us. But um, if you are from here, you can recognize very quickly that this is, has not been my forever in the past home. Uh, I have a, a, a slight draw in my voice. I've worked very much over the past dozen years to uh, you know, make that something that is understandable to everybody around me. But at times I slip into some Mississippiisms. okay? So I was born in Arizona. I lived in Memphis for several years and then we moved down to rural Mississippi. And uh, we've lived in the Mississippi Delta. The Mississippi Delta is a very interesting place. It's like, I go to the Mississippi Delta and it's like, my heart sings because it's home, you know? It's like, there's nothing quite like your childhood home. There's something about going into that place and just saying, this feels normal, and this is like sentimental and nostalgic and all that type of thing. And then recognizing also the downsides of the place. So the Mississippi Delta is a great place full of fantastic food. I mean, Anthony Bourdain took an entire episode of his show where he could travel anywhere in the world and eat food, and he went to my hometown. That's right, my hometown, okay? He, it is of 11,000 people. That's where he wanted to go eat. But the Mississippi Delta also has many problems. I mean, it's a place sad enough to where the music genre of the blues could be invented, okay? It is an impoverished place, it's probably the most, if not the second most impoverished place in the entire country. Uh, When JFK was deciding whether or not he would run for president, they took him also to my hometown so that he could see the level of poverty that people were living in. And when he saw children living in homes with uh, dirt floors, he said, this should not be happening in the United States of America. And that's when he decided to run for president. That's what they document in the documentary, at least. That's our story with it. Uh, there are many other problems. It's, a, it's an impoverished place. It's a uh, racially divided place. Um, I, in my hometown, it's majority African American. Uh, I grew up as uh, a majority culture. White culture is still the majority culture in this area, but there are more black people than there are white people in my hometown. And so I went to public school. Uh, my public school was 70% black, 30% white, maybe like a Latino guy in there. You know, there, there weren't very many, uh, maybe like one Asian that I can remember in, in there. It was mainly just black and white. And, uh, you know, I lived in this world for many years. And here's the thing about it. I had no problem going to black restaurants. I had no problem going to black stores. But when I decided to start going to church in eighth grade, I went to a church that was 100% white because it wasn't like I had a choice in many ways. I could choose a church that's 100% white or a church that was 100% black. Those were the only two options. There were no multi-ethnic churches in my hometown. In fact, when you look at churches, multi-ethnic is not something that would describe most of us. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 60 years ago now, said that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is probably, if not, the most segregated hour of every single week. Our church lives do not often reflect the lives that we even live. Though 80% of congregants say they would like to be in a church that's multi-ethnic, that they think that the church should be more multi-ethnic, the same 80% people, 86% of them still choose to go to a church that's 100% homogeneous. And this is for a lot of reasons, and I can't get into every reason why churches are segregated, but this is what I do have to tell you, is that planting an intentionally multi-ethnic church is hard. It is not easy, it is hard. It would be a lot easier to plant a culturally and ethnically homogeneous church than it would be to plant a multi-ethnic church. But yet, the Lord has given us this vision to be a multi-ethnic church. And though we have a long way to grow, we have already passed the line of where you actually call a church multi-ethnic. Because a church is multi-ethnic when less than 80% of the church is one um, specific uh, ethnicity. And so we've passed that at least in our membership as I went through and counted it all up where we are a multi-ethnic church in membership. Uh, but we still have a long way to grow and a lot of ways to pursue that. So I have two points for us. Uh, the first point is four reasons to pursue multi-ethnicity. And the second point is three ways to pursue multi-ethnicity. And that is how you hide a seven-point sermon in two points. All right, so first, four reasons to pursue multi-ethnicity. Assuredly, there are more, but here are four reasons to pursue multi-ethnicity, though it is hard. First, the authors of the New Testament do not seem to think that this is an optional thing. The authors of the New Testament do not seem to think that having homogeneous churches is even an option. But they assert that churches are assumed to be multi-ethnic. Because the the struggle between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians is all over the New Testament. It is everywhere. They talk about that in almost every single epistle. It comes up all the time. In Galatians chapter 2, you have the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia, and he says, When I saw Peter last time, I opposed him to his face. That's pretty bold, okay? We're used to Paul being bold, but that's pretty bold. And why did Paul oppose Peter to his face? Surely Peter was giving some Trinitarian heresy. Surely he had gotten something wrong about the doctrine of the atonement. No, this was about schoolroom drama. This was about cafeteria drama that was happening where Peter was. Because here's what Peter chose to do. Peter had decided that he was only gonna sit with the Jewish Christians while he eats. And he was not going to sit with the Gentile Christians, too. You see, he was promoting an ethnocentrism that has no place in the New Testament church. And so what did Paul do? He approaches Peter, and he addresses him strongly to his face, and he says, the way that you're walking is not in step with the gospel. Now, that is a strong, strong statement. For you to say, the way that you're walking, what you are doing by eating with these folks and not with these folks, that's not in step with the gospel. It is not ever an option for the early church to have a homogeneous population in their families. Acts chapter 6, here we see the Hellenistic widows, meaning the Greek-speaking widows, are being neglected in the distribution of the food by the Hebrew-speaking leaders. And so they, they brought a complaint, and they said, hey, our widows are being neglected here. And so what did they decide to do? They said, well, here's what we need to do. We need to find seven men of wisdom and good repute who can distribute the food more evenly. And so from the midst of them, they picked seven men. Every one of these men has a Greek name. So they chose seven minority men to ensure that the materials for the food was evenly distributed among all the different widows. Now, I'm not one to correct Paul. But if I could go back in time, and if I was going to be a church consultant at that time, I might go to Paul and say, look, what's your goal? What's your vision? What are you trying to do here? Because this multi-ethnic thing, it's causing a lot of problems. You're having to spend a lot of time on it. Wouldn't it be easier, Paul? And if your goal is explicitly to reach people with the gospel, Paul, wouldn't it be easier if you just went into every town and you planted a Jewish church and a Gentile church? Wouldn't that be easier? You Look, same Jesus, you might reach more people, and you wouldn't have to argue about food and where people sit and who's being neglected in the distribution of food. You could just have your Gentile church and your Jewish church, and they could worship the same thing and have the same beliefs. But that is never an option for the early church. That is simply not an option, and it shouldn't be for us either. Jesus came to reconcile us to God, but he also came to reconcile us to one another. And the scripture is really clear about this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now we are all welcomed as brothers and sisters in the family of God. We pursue multi-ethnicity because the early church pursued multi-ethnicity and did not see it as an option to pursue or not. Number two, we pursue multi-ethnicity because ethnic diversity is an apologetic for the power of the gospel. Um, There's no shortage of friend-making opportunities in Somerville. Oftentimes, I hear people talk about the power of the church, and I do think that the church is powerful in this way. The church offers a fantastic community. But when we narrow the church down to say that's all it offers, man, we are missing out on something. Because if all it offers is community, then a lot of our neighbors, they've got community. You know, you can go and join a board game group, You can go and join a running group. You can go and join a Dungeons and Dragons group. You can go and join a uh, basketball team or any other type of sports team, a political party, whatever it might be, and you can find community. But the church is different than all of these groups because the church brings people together who wouldn't normally come together in our church. We have Republicans and Democrats. Imagine it, living in harmony. It should be a part of John Lennon's song, you know? The church brings together people with different interests, political allegiances. It brings together tax collectors and zealots. It brings together sinners and Pharisees. This is the power of the gospel, and it's one of the most powerful apologetics that you can offer for Christianity is that it brings these diverse people together. It's an amazing opportunity for us. John Stott, who was just a stodgy academic from the middle 1900s in England, okay? This is what he said. He said, the more mixed the congregation is, especially of class and color, the greater its opportunity to demonstrate the power of Christ. Derwin Gray, um, who is a pastor in North Carolina, who was a former NFL football player, and now he pastors a large multi-ethnic church. Here's what he says. He says, one of the gospel innovations that caused the early church to flourish and experience rapid growth in the first century world was that the Jesus movement overwhelmed ethnic barriers and God birthed a new multicolored ethnicity called the church. It's powerful when we think about it in this kind of way. The church has been, and always has been, and always will be, a multi-ethnic church, and that is one of the greatest apologetics that we have. The third reason why we pursue multi-ethnicity as a church is because we love God's vision for eternity so much that we will not be satisfied unless we taste of that communion in the present. The third reason is because we love the vision that he's given us for heaven so much that we will not and cannot be satisfied unless we taste just a little bit of it now. The scripture that we read before we started today. It says that, we get this peek into the throne room of God. We get to see what it's like in heaven. Just for a moment, the Bible doesn't have a lot of clear descriptions of the throne room of God, but this is one of the most clear descriptions of the throne room of God. And you get a peek into the throne room, and who's there? But it says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. Now, what's interesting about this passage is... What's not included here? Because he doesn't say anything about social status. He doesn't say anything about economic standing. We know from Jesus' teaching that marriage will not continue into heaven. We know that child rearing will not continue into heaven. We know that socioeconomic status will not continue into heaven. But what will? Cultural identities. Our cultural identities continue into heaven. We continue to be a diverse group of people speaking different languages from different cultural backgrounds, and it's something that God loves. The goal of heaven is not that we all come together and we become the same, but that we come together and we become a beautiful tapestry of God's creative power and that all of our cultures get to shine together. We get to celebrate those things. and We don't battle with one another, but we celebrate them together. Isn't it a beautiful vision that we have of heaven where we get to do this, and it's no longer seen as hostile, but it's seen as beautiful and wonderful. We get to celebrate all that God has done. Bible scholar Esau Macaulay puts it like this. He says, the very diversity of cultures is a manifestation of god's glory god's eschatological vision for the reconciliation of all things in his son it requires my blackness and my neighbor's latina identity to endure forever the vision of the kingdom is incomplete without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as part of one kingdom Another Bible scholar, Scott McKnight, puts it like this. He says, God's desire is for us to experience multi-ethnic fellowship now in the local church as it will be for eternity. God's heart is total reconciliation. And here's the deal, church. We have to be 100% convinced that this is the vision that he has for us in the future or we're never going to pursue it today. Because it's hard. There's a lot of disagreements and challenges that come in a multi-ethnic church. But because we are convinced of what he has promised us for the future, we pursue a taste of it today. Number four reason why we promote this and why we're pursuing this is a multi-ethnic church gives us fresh perspectives about God and the world. Um, I have a funny thing to share with you. I I told you that I grew up in this place that was anything but culturally homogeneous. I mean, I grew up around people that were very different from me all the time. But here's one thing I just realized about 10 years ago after moving to Boston is that, and and I think that, you you know, maybe some people from a similar cultural background might resonate with this. I I realized I had a culture that me, I... Have a culture. I thought about everybody else having a culture. I never even considered the fact that I might have one. That there's a white culture, and you know I've heard from many people that this is probably one of the most difficult things about talking about multi in a in a group of people that is majority white. Is uh, white people oftentimes don't even see that they have a culture because they just kind of view the way that they do things as normal. We're the neutral. Everybody else has a culture around us, but you know, we're the normal ones. But friends, that's not the way it is. We have a culture. And our way of doing it is our way, not the way. And man, that's a challenging thing when you think about it for a little while. In 1960, the United States was about 80% white. And that's where a lot of our ideas formed about this. But by 2060, 100 years later, the United States is going to be like 40% white. And so the, this is going to change, I hope, in the coming years of our default understanding of culture in that way. But living in a church that is multi-ethnic is so helpful for you to understand who God is and for you to appreciate who your neighbors are. Because you cannot understand who God is from your limited perspective. It's like looking at um, a statue, and you can see the statue, you can see different things in it as you go around it, because you see it from different perspectives. And so I only see God from my own perspective. I can't stand in someone else's, but I love to talk with people who see God from different perspectives. And it's a great apologetic for the gospel, because for us, let me give you an example. For us as um, Westerners, for the most part, there are some things about the Bible that are offensive to us and some things that we like about the Bible. We might find, in general, our culture, um, Westerners in general, um, but especially white Westerners, to find that the Bible's teaching about gender and sexuality can be rather offensive. But you know what the Bible teaches about loving your enemy and forgiveness? We usually find that as appealing. But if you go to many traditional cultures, The exact opposite is going to happen. All of a sudden, what the Bible teaches about men and women and sexuality and gender, that's going to feel really progressive in some cultures. And then you go over here, and you talk about loving your neighbor, and they're like, oh, no, that's not the way that the world works. And I find that offensive, the way that you would say that. You see, the Bible, it's not written for one culture at one particular time. We have to think about this as a document that's written to all peoples at all times, and we have to understand it accordingly. But it also opens up fresh perspectives that we see in our world. Here's the reality. When you have real relationships with people who are really different than you, it changes the way you think about major issues in the world. It changes the way you think about major issues in the world. Because of where I grew up, you know, if I ever log on to that death pit known as Facebook, I see uh, a lot of different uh, understandings of the world. And it's an interesting thing to be because I've been here for so long, but yet I have a lot of friends where I grew up and, you know, everybody's moved around different places. But, you know, especially over the past four or five years where things have been so um, dumpster fire-ish uh, in our culture that it's, uh, it you know, d- different people just, they just don't talk to each other. They're each in their own little echo chamber. But in a church where you can, have real relationships with real people who think differently than you, all of a sudden it cools everything down and you're able to understand a new perspective. I love how Pastor Derwin Gray put it. He said, we, we will continue to interpret events like the, like the Michael Brown shooting very differently as long as we stay segregated in the tribal worlds of black churches and white churches. Sociologist Michael Emerson He did uh, sociological research, and he found that homogeneous local churches reproduce, and this is not just white churches, this is homogeneous local churches, reproduce inequality, encourage oppression, strengthen racial division, and heighten political separation. We need the multi-ethnic church. We need it. Our culture needs this more than it's ever needed anything. (laughs) ever needed it before because we are so separated. You see, when people walk out of the church, it's not like they walk into a world that will confront them, but they become more polarized walking out of the church. It's in the church that we continue to have these conversations and to learn from one another. So that's four reasons why we need multi-ethnic churches. Here are three ways that we are going to pursue it, three ways to pursue multi-ethnicity in the church. Um... This year, uh, one of my friends, actually two people that I knew from seminary time, one of them was actually my roommate in seminary, released a book called In Church As It Is in Heaven. And uh, one of them is a seminary professor, the other one's now a a pastor. And the authors coined this term, and I think it's a great term to describe what we're pursuing, is they say that they want to see a multi-ethnic kingdom culture a multi-ethnic kingdom culture. Let me define that for you. It says, a context where people develop a gospel-formed identity that simultaneously includes and transcends their ethnic identities. Let me uh, continue. They describe it more. Knowing what, knowing that whatever is true and beautiful and good in each ethnic identity will persist into eternity, multi-ethnic kingdom culture is able to celebrate a diversity of ethnicities in the same community, while simultaneously seeing Christ as our supreme and central identity. When you're in a multi-ethnic church, you're released to celebrate all the different ethnicities, and one of the main reasons why is because you see that your primary identity as a human being is no longer your ethnicity, but it's your identity and status with Christ. And when you understand that Jesus is the center of everything we do, that we worship the same Jesus, it allows us to celebrate one another without feeling put down ourselves because Jesus is our identity and He is enough for us. So I think that we have three ways to pursue this. That I'll, I'll give them to you quickly and then I'll walk through them. First, uh, we're going to need the Spirit of God to pursue this identity and this understanding as a multi ethnic church. We're going to have to sacrifice, and it's going to require forgiveness. Okay, so let's walk through these very briefly. Spirit of God. This would be impossible without the Spirit of God, because you can't bring people together from different backgrounds like that, unless the Spirit is moving in them. Uh, Matt Chandler, he's the president of the Acts 29 Network. He's also the pastor, a very well-known pastor, pastor of the megachurch in Dallas uh, called The Village. He said this, I've come to realize that planting and growing homogeneous churches can be done with, with, with relative ease and a lack of dependence on the Spirit. And I think that that's true in many ways. We know that people like to hang out with people who are like themselves. When you have natural things that you can talk about, when you have music background, that you can talk about when you have style and everything that goes with it that are similar. It's just easier to hang out with folks like that. You have more things to talk about. And that's one of the reasons why sometimes when we see new churches being planted in cities, I've seen this happen. I, in New York a couple years ago, I saw a new church get planted and the pastor was from Texas. And um, I like talked to a friend who was going there and, uh, like, what's your church like? And he's like, oh, it's like, everybody's from Texas. Like, everyone. They're all, it's just like people that have moved to New York from Texas, and they all go to this church. I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. You know? It's like a cultural enclave that he's created. And that's not what we want to see happen. The second thing that we're going to need is not just the Holy Spirit, but we're going to need sacrifice. Building a multi-ethnic church is hard. It requires everyone to sacrifice it would be a lot easier to plant a culturally mono-ethnic church. I've been a part of one of these. And I'll tell you, um, it was fun in a lot of ways to be a part of a culturally mono-ethnic church. When I was in seminary, the church that Megan and I were at before moving to uh, Boston, uh, it's grown a lot, actually. It's changed a lot. It's become multi-ethnic. Um, but when we were there, it was monocultural. Like, everyone listened to Radiohead and Bon and they all drank coffee and wore skinny jeans at the time, okay, early 2000s, late 2000s, okay. Uh, It was a long time ago, but we were all listening to the same indie rock. We were dressing the same. It was easy, so easy to build friendships, and it was a fun time in a lot of ways, but when I look back on that, I just think it was lacking substance in some ways. It lacked the ability to really understand people who are different from me and to love them. It lacked the opportunity to lay down my preferences regularly for the good of my brothers and sisters. And that is what the gospel calls us to do. And that is always an issue in these New Testament churches, of people having to lay down their preferences for the good of others. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't get that opportunity, then you're not getting the fully-orbed understanding of what it means to be a Christian in Christ follower. Let me give you an example. Musical preferences. Now, we work really hard, and I'm not saying we're perfect at this, but I sit down with Emmanuel and Erica, every month, we work through all the songs, we think through the substance of all the songs, we think through who is going to enjoy different songs, we try to keep it somewhat uh, balanced to where different people are going to be angry about the lack of songs that they like at different times, and we try to keep it uh, always Christ-exalting. And so when you're singing a song, and you're like, man, I'm not, I'm not jamming to this, this is not my thing, you can just know that there's probably someone in this church who, like, that's the only song that their heart is connecting with today, all right? We, we, we have to sing a diverse type of music that allows us to celebrate with one another. If it was just me picking the songs for a church full of people like me, it would probably look different. But I love the songs that we sing, and I love seeing God's people respond and worship him together. And so the next time we're singing that song, just keep in mind those people that not everyone is like you, and that we don't organize the service for you, but for all of us to come together, and we praise God in that way. Um, so that's just one example, but it's going to require sacrifice in a lot of different places, a lot of different ways, from the way that we view time, to all kinds of different cultural differences that we experience. And lastly, it's going to take forgiveness for us to pursue this. To build a multi-ethnic church, it will require us to show forgiveness and to seek forgiveness. Many of us have had experiences in our lives that would prevent us from wanting to be in close fellowship with someone from a different ethnicity. And some of us have experienced blatant racism in our lives. And if we're going to be successful in the, this venture of building a multi ethnic church, it's going to require forgiveness. But forgiveness is not easy. Tim Keller defines forgiveness as voluntary suffering. <laughs> that is forgiveness. It is voluntary suffering where you agree to take on the debt that you did not earn, you pay the debt that you did not cause. I've used this illustration before, but I think it helps us get the point. Let's say we're, we're at the Market Basket over here in Union Square, okay? We're, we're both parked there, you're sitting in your car waiting to leave that madhouse. Oh my gosh, it is crazy. Um, and I'm trying to get out of there with my kids and you know, taking three kids to the grocery, not an easy task. Um, so I just whip my car out of there very quickly and for some reason, I'm not paying attention. i back into your vehicle. Well, now we have a problem because I broke your taillight. So I get out of the car and I walk over and I say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And then you get out of the car and you're like, hey, pastor, what's up? And you say to me, look, pastor, don't worry about it. I've got it. I'll get it taken care of. It's okay. You go on. You've got your kids in the car. Let's not call the cops. Let's not, you don't owe me anything. It's okay. Well, what'd you just do? You forgave me. What did it require? You took on the debt. You see, you're paying for my mistake. That is forgiveness. You pay for someone else's mistake. That is forgiveness. And that is what God calls us to. And because it is what he shows us. You see, this is the gospel. That Jesus didn't just come and die, but he was paying for your mistakes and my mistakes. And you remember the gospel. It says that we're, that Jesus, he reconciled us with God, but that he also reconciled us with one another. Because he didn't just pay for my mistakes, he paid for your mistakes. And now I can forgive you because he has forgiven me of so much more. I am able to say, you know what, I'm going to take on that debt. Even if you can't seek the forgiveness that you need to have. Uh, my dad died a couple of years ago, and my dad was not in the picture for me as a, as a child. Uh, he left when I was five, and uh, I didn't get to see him many times after that, and you know, I've got like all these wounds from that, um, of course, who couldn't, and um, you know, I'd always dreamed that maybe my dad would like come to Christ or come to his senses, and he would pursue a relationship with me, and he would pursue uh, reconciliation, and he would say, hey, I'm Sorry, I was a crappy dad. Uh, I wasn't there for him. But then he died. I'll never have that. And it didn't take me very long to realize that I just have to forgive him. Because for me to hold on to this sense of injustice and this sense of being wronged, is only to allow his hurt to perpetuate in my life. But if I say, I forgive you, it frees me of the need to constantly feel like he deserves judgment and justice. Although he does. But not from me. Because I'm releasing the power that he holds over me. You see, many of us, by nursing our grudges, we allow others to hold power over. That's why it was so inspiring when the, the members of the church in uh, South Carolina forgave Dylan Roof, uh, the man who came in and, and shot the traditionally African-American church. Because they said, we're not going to let your hatred have power over us. And because Christ has forgiven us, we forgive you. Now, there are many people who said, you shouldn't do that. You should not forgive this guy. They weren't saying, hey, we don't want you to rot in jail. (laughs) You know, go rot in jail. They were saying, your hatred will not have power over me. And church, we will not let hatred have power over us. But we will express forgiveness. And so for some of us, we need to just forgive some folks in our heart for some things that have happened, some experiences. Some of us might need to seek forgiveness from others. And all of us need to seek forgiveness from God. To say, hey, I've been ethnocentric. I've demanded my ways above God's ways far too often. And God, that is not the vision that you have for me. it's not the vision that you have for our church. Would you forgive me? That's the first step. Make it right with God. And then we step awkwardly into those relationships that feel uncomfortable. But we do it with a divine curiosity and not a sense of judgment a divine curiosity. We don't think my way, right way, your way, wrong way. We think, well, that's a different way. Uh, Help me understand. And so, friends, it's going to require patience as you have that forgiveness, because people, if you live with people who are from a different culture, they're not going to understand everything that you do. It's just going to require patience and curiosity and perseverance through these things. Each week we get an opportunity to evaluate our hearts as we come to the communion table, and I think this is the perfect place to end the sermon, where you can evaluate your own heart and where you are have refused to lay down your preferences, whether that be from an ethnic-centered approach or from anything else, and say, Jesus, my heart belongs to you. And if you are a, if you are a child of God this morning, if you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, we invite you to come to the table. Um, Would you stand as we pray? God, we pray that you would build something beautiful in each of us and through our church. Help us to reach people that are different than us and help us to constantly be laying down our preferences and our rights for the good of you. May you be glorified and magnified. May our fellowship be a, a witness to our community to those around us and help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we pursue your kingdom. We want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, God, may this be an outpost for your heavenly reality that we will one day enjoy with every tribe and tongue and language throughout eternity with a great multitude that cannot be numbered. We ask these things in Christ's name.